Welcome to Shakespeare's Pants, a podcast that's all about domestic activity during the life and times of our beloved William Shakespeare. My name's Angela, and I'm a Shakespearean, which I like to think might one day have some useful application in real life. But in the meantime, I'm determined to make Shakespearean history come together for you, my lovely listeners. Thank you for joining me for this one-off Christmas special in which we'll be hearing from historians, musicians and literary scholars. And as a magical festive treat, we're even going to hear from a curator at Hampton Court Palace. So pour your spiced ale and ready those mince pies for here be episode nine, the Christmas special. Shakespeare's Pants Christmas special. To mark the festive season, this episode is all about early modern Christmas. When, what and how did people celebrate this much-anticipated period in the 16th and early 17th centuries? How did people entertain themselves? What was understood by the whole notion of Christmas? I mean, its relevance to not just the Christian, but also the domestic calendar. What, in short was the impact of Christmas on the life domestic for our early modern predecessors? And how, as per usual, did any of this find its way, or indeed bypass completely, the works of Billy the Bard? So let's begin by outlining what Christmas actually meant in the period. As one of the most significant events in the Christian calendar, along with Easter, Christmas was a period of reflection and piety, especially during Advent when, as a hangover from the pre-Reformation, people were encouraged to fast and abstain from indulgence to mark the birth of Christ with some degree of sobriety. However, from Christmas Day through to January the 6th, a period known as the 12 Days of Christmas, sobriety was far from the norm. Post-Reformation, the regular feasting for saints and festival days diminished, and so the festivities associated with Christmas were a sort of compensatory, if somewhat concentrated, form of holiday. So let's hear from our first guest, living historian Esme Wise. The 12 days of Christmas are Christmas Eve to Twelfth Night, which is the evening of the 5th of January. The 6th of January is 12th day. So those are the 12 days you are forbidden to toil. You're not meant to do any work. And that's really important for a Tudor because your life is work. And particularly in the winter, the days are so short that actually you're having to fit, if you are working, you're fitting quite a lot in a very small window. It's not like the summer where you can have a two hour dinner break in the middle of the day and have a sleep. In the winter, you know, you're kind of trying to fit everything in. Admittedly, you've got slightly less to do in the farming calendar, but if you're a craftsman or or, or a labourer, you're still having to do a lot of work. So the fact that you're not working and you're not allowed it's not just that you're not working you're not allowed to work for those 12 days of Christmas would have just been a great break this is your holiday they would wrap the spinning wheel in garlands in ivy in decoration which meant it couldn't be used so it's been both practically and symbolically shut away so that you cannot spin for those 12 days which just shows that you're not working so it was it was a very religiously important time as well so people went to church you went to church a lot you know you would have felt that communal religious spirit as well of everyone celebrating together i'm still curious about the physicality of the festival if work stopped how did people actually mark the occasion at home tangibly esme tells me about the importance and indeed origin of decorating the house just bringing in the greenery, that's a pagan idea. Anything living, anything uh, evergreen was brought in. So holly and ivy were the two most important ones and they always were brought in. But the other two that are mentioned a lot are rosemary and bay. And they all have symbolic meaning, some of which I think was kind of Christian symbolic meaning. I believe holly, you know, the red of the holly berry is meant to represent Christ's blood. The Tudors definitely did kissing under the mistletoe. That was a Roman thing of meeting under the mistletoe meant that you were meeting in peace and you couldn't hurt each other under a mis- under the mistletoe. It was sort of a you know sort of a magical thing. The centerpiece is actually something called a kissing bow, and it's like a sort of ball or crown of greenery, and it always had mistletoe in it 
And then that was lifted up into the ceiling and then you'd meet under the mistletoe and you'd kiss each other and have, you know, that would be part of that. So kissing under the mistletoe is definitely an old pagan thing. Bringing greenery into your house is pagan. So it's logical that local foliage was brought into the home. But what if you lived somewhere a little less verdant? If you lived in the town, you'd buy it. There are records of people buying ivy and holly uh, who live in a town so that they can decorate. So urban churches, for example, you've got to decorate the church so they buy in the greenery. So it does depend where you where you live, what you're going to decorate with. You might decorate with apples. Again, they're a seasonal thing. They're around, they're bright, you know, they're colourful red apples. If you're wealthy, you might use oranges as well, because oranges are at their best at Christmas. They are, they, they're even, even in the 16th century, in the early 17th century, they're kind of known as a bit of a Christmas fruit. If you can afford oranges, you might bring them. And then the Christmas spices, cloves, ginger, nutmeg, cinnamon, those are the smells that you're going to want around your house. You might stick cloves in your orange if you can afford. I mean, that's a very expensive thing to do. Don't get me wrong. Again, this is all relative. If you're very poor, you're going to bring in some ivy and holly you found in the hedge and you've decorated your house. If you're wealthy, you're going to stud an orange all over with cloves and put it in the middle of your table and go, look at that. What I can afford. I might gild it too, just for fun. But the greenery, we'd been doing that for hundreds of years before the 16th century. It's an ancient, I mean, that is pagan, the idea of bringing the greenery in. And there is that idea, which I love, of the reason why you don't keep it in your house after Twelfth Night, because that is entirely pagan origins. Because the idea is that the spirits of the trees and the greenery, they don't really like being brought inside. So if they stay inside too long, they're going to get annoyed with you. So you can have it in your house until 12th night, but then you've got to take it out your house and put it back outside so the spirits are appeased. So we have our time off from work and the house is beautifully decorated. But what else was there to do? I will add, however, that in every single excerpt I've ever seen about, wow, we don't get to work at Christmas, no one ever mentions the fact that someone has to cook the feasts. The major events of cooking and eating were central to the 12-day celebrations. But before we actually get to the food, let's recall that prior to Christmas Eve, Advent traditionally marked a period of dearth or abstinence. For the religious, they'd actually been fasting before the period of, of Christmas. So there had been an, a time of want. It's not dissimilar to Easter. It's a fast. So basically no eggs, no dairy, no meat. That's fast. In, in, if, if you hear about fasting in a Tudor context, it doesn't mean don't eat. It doesn't mean you're not eating at all. You are abstaining from meat and dairy and eggs. Assuming that one observed an Advent fast, the official period of indulgence could then begin. I asked Dr Joan Fitzpatrick from Loughborough University about specific Christmas traditions pertaining to foods. So they would have enjoyed good food as much as they could afford, of course. There were certain traditions. So, for instance, it was traditional for the wealthier houses to have a, a boar's head taking pride of place in the centre of the table. In fact, so popular was the boar's head as the focus of feast and indeed spectacle that a popular carol from the period is entitled The Boar's Head Carol. The boar's head in hand bring I, with garlands gay and rosemary, I pray you all sing merrily. The boar's head, I understand, is the chief service in this land, look wherever it be fanned. Joan tells us that good food was expected during the period, so I'm curious about where this was actually coming from. Of course, if you were a wealthy sort, this might be self-evident. But what about middle and lower sorts, households? Where did they get food from? This is Esme again. Well, you've slaughtered everything. That's one point. So you have quite a lot of meat because a lot of people, what they do is they would slaughter the animals so they don't have to feed them over winter. So this is one of the times you might actually have some meat because you'll have freshly slaughtered animals, particularly pigs. And people saved up. You know, people who could afford very little would save and save so that they could have the twist of sugar, the tiny bit of spice. 
And this will be the only time in the whole year that they might have some sugar and some spices and they won't have it any other time, but they're going to make sure they've got enough so they can have just a bit for Christmas. Coupled with the fact that it is early winter, we're not talking January, the really cruel months are January and February, because by then you've run out of everything. This is actually quite near the beginning. You haven't yet run out of stuff, or you shouldn't have done. If you have, you have miscalculated horribly. Let's return to Joan for some more Christmas food traditions. Lower income households might have used preserved meats, meats that had been stored over the winter, um, so spiced and salted and just the usual way of preserving foods and, and pickles. And I mean, I, I imagine that the, the 12th night cake, which was a highly fruity kind of spiced cake, and you can see where our Christmas cake come, comes into being, it would have been made, I, I, I presume, like Christmas cakes very early in the year. So they would have used the ingredients when they had plenty of them for the cake, and then the cake would would improve with age, I suppose. This was a cake where they would have a bean and a pea inserted into the cake, the, the Twelfth Night cake. And there are lots of references to the Twelfth Night cake in, in literature from the period. So they would have had a bean and a pea inserted into the cake, and whichever recipient of a slice of cake got the bean and, and whoever got the pea, they would be king and, and queen. And they would be uh, wassail, so they would be um, they would have toasts drunk to them and, and they would be king and queen for that particular, that, that, that evening. Some of our traditions, like, for example, mince pies, hark back to this period, but are very different because the mince pies in early modern England would have been meat filled so they wouldn't have been sweet and there are recipes for mince pies with for instance veal uh, minced veal and puddings often were savory as well so when we talk about christmas pudding puddings of all sorts would have been a bit like haggis i think um so a bit more so that a blood pudding and lots of very savory in, intensely sort of highly flavored puddings and spices if they could afford to use them but they did have sweet plum pudding which i think is is probably more it's similar more of a precursor to our christmas pudding so a sweet um plum pudding so plums would have grown in of course their orchards so they would have had easy access to a lot of fruits not potatoes not sprouts so they wouldn't have had potatoes of course they come from the new world they wouldn't have had I mean, vegetables would have been rare and there aren't very many vegetables in in descriptions of early feasts either medieval or, or early modern let's hear from esme again certain certain groups were not so fond of that aspect definitely um but for ordinary people this was their big holiday, their chance to just survive and enjoy and have a wonderful time and that being okay. Because I think a lot of the time kind of enjoying stuff, you know, especially certain things you weren't always meant to. I mean, you weren't meant to drink to excess in the Tudor period, really, except at Christmas, where suddenly it's absolutely fine to get completely drunk all the time. Then it's OK. <laughs> I was I sometimes have this image and this is just my own head, but I just have this sometimes this image of all these men who are normally working, suddenly very much getting in the way at home. Because 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 their wives are still having to cook the food and the husband should be working, but he's actually just drinking with his mates. Uh, so the root, so the normal routine is thrown out the window. And that's, I think, quite key because, you know, the routine of daily life is suddenly upended for these 12 days. We will return to this whole notion of disruption to routine. But for now, careful planning, saving and preparation were all clearly imperative. However, from our series so far, we've learned that the watchword of the early modern period was moderation. How, therefore, did people reconcile the business of indulgence with pious abstinence and the sobriety of this Christian festival? They could, if they could afford to overindulge, they could compartmentalise some of the difficulties that gluttony being a sin would, would would present them with. And of course, strictly, gluttony isn't simply a sin of 
overeating. It's a sin of enjoying food. One of the ways in which this compartmentalization might have occurred was by way of charity. If one feasted one's neighbours and donated money to the church and to the poor, the sentiment, both moral and spiritual, was enough to counteract the otherwise contradictory emphasis on indulgence. I imagine you're going to feast in other people's houses. I would have thought within the community you would be going, you are feasting in this person's house and then the next day you might go to so-and-so's house and you take turns. It's not that one person in the village is the one who's providing all the food. That's that's not practical in a, in a village community anyway. Um, although I think generosity was important. So I imagine that those who were better off it was their time to be generous and to give to those who were less well off. In a diary entry from 1667, Samuel Pepys wrote, It being a fine light moonshine morning, and so home round the city, and stopped and dropped money at five or six places, which I was the willinger to do, it being Christmas Day, and so home and there find my wife in bed, and Jane and the maids making pies, and so I to bed, and slept well. Being financially the willinger or more disposed to generosity at Christmas was extremely significant, whether by way of food or money, benevolence, often due to hospitality, was a given. Now, if we circle back to the morality for a moment, the material culture of feasting is itself rather curious. To learn more about a specific example, this is material culture historian Nick Fulcher, formerly of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. But um, I think from that height of Christmas and that whole idea of the best of the best is, is the, the, the notion of your banqueting. So we still use the term banquet, don't we, to associate with a fine meal. Whereas the banqueting course in the Elizabethan period was the last course where the top table, if you like, would withdraw from the main dining hall into a separate room to do the sweetmeats and the, the, the treats at the end of it. So little luxury items often made of March Payne, the forerunner to marzipan, but also just those things that are created to look beautiful sometimes covered with gold leaf, sometimes beautifully iced with powdered sugar and lemon juice applied with a feather. So that beautiful sort of almost patisserie, as we would know it today, this, this lovely, delicate thing. And they were often served on um, what were known as posy trenches. So a circle of wood sliced very thinly, left usually plain on one side, for the sweetmeat to be put on and then on the flip side of it would be beautifully painted and decorated and usually with a motto in the middle of it some coming from the bible so interestingly probably the forerunner of christmas crackers in many ways <laughs> that you've got this motto and of course they usually come in sets of eight because that's usually how many people you had in your banqueting course on that side of things but they would also stimulate conversation some of them actually come in sets where the motto all runs through so you need all eight of them together to be able to do it in the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust's collections, we have a couple of sets of posy trenches. One particularly, again, is a set of eight and has lovely little moral sayings on the other side. And you can understand how it would then enable people to have a conversation. So a bit of a party breaker, I suppose, in many ways. But seeing as you've eaten it, you're eating it right at the end of the banquet and had quite a lot of drink to go with. I'm not entirely sure you would need much encouragement. <laughs> this point in the time. Before you question the efficacy of moral sayings etched into one's tableware, it's helpful to remind ourselves about Dr Tara Hamling's observations from episode three. The idea was that you, you focused and you meditated on death during life. There's a phrase, memento mori, remember you must die, that you see a lot in the visual and material culture of the period. So objects could really help with prompting remembrance. If you think about it, when are you most at liberty to think about things? It's when you're kind of doing the mundane, the ordinary things in your daily routine. The posy trenches from the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust collection that Nick mentioned bear phrases such as... Who in his life is void of care shall in the end have simple fare? And... He that climbs higher than he should, 
is like to fall lower than he would. Although not about mortality, such mottoes fall into Tara's category of Protestant instructive meditations on everyday morality. But let us veer away from the gravity of this subject back to the concepts of community and hospitality. Here's Nick Fulcher again. Within the Shakespeare birthplace trust connection, we have the beautiful Cristillo glass wine bowl, um, a, a high-end piece, roughly 1600 Venetian, beautiful crystal glass wine bowl. So, you know, the top end of your punch bowls, which takes you into that whole realm of, you know, wassailing and all of those traditions that also happen at this particular time of year. Wassailing both in terms of the Christmas wassail, the one that is there for celebrations, and then the other form of wassailing, which is the, the one for, you know, ensuring a good harvest for the following year. It varies in different parts of the country. You know, if you're in a malt growing area, you're going to be wassailing with heated beer, whereas if you're in an orchard area, you know, Herefordshire, where they make cider. So there's loads of variations. And you also get the lovely dish of what is known as lamb's wool, which has bits of bread soaked into it as well, which then sort of puffs up with the, the liquor. And it looks like lamb's wool. And you often find that there were bits of toast at the bottom of it. So hence the reason probably why we still raise a toast today. Having a nice drink, wassailing and raising toasts to the coming seasons was all part of encouraging community spirit. Now, what about Christmas outfits? What were people wearing? Nick Fulcher tells us more about garments for special occasions. Clothing was normally bought in its raw form, the material. So you will find that there is material expenditure, but not necessarily what is actually being worn. However, that said, obviously, the 12 days of Christmas and Epiphany, the 6th of January, is, is this time for feasting festivals. It's a display of your wealth and your so social position, despite the fact you're entertaining people. And as you go up the social scale, you're then getting into the realms of the masked balls. So there is more than one sense of dressing up going on here in the fact that you are dressing up the masked balls. You may be putting on costumes to represent other characters. But inevitably, behind all of that, you are going to be wearing your Sunday best or your best clothes that go with it. On the night of her wedding day, Juliet cannot contain her excitement and longs for Romeo to visit her, exclaiming, So tedious is this day, as in the night before some festival to an impatient child that hath new robes and may not wear them. So before a festival like Christmas, how common was it to have new robes? It depends on your means to do it. It depends on the need as well. But of course, you've also got to take into account the, the time it takes to make something. You know, so um, most people are going to be making their own. You know, the higher up the social scale, scale you go, the more you can afford or the more that you can actually get by being given gifts. So again, this whole celebration period around um, Christmas tide, you have the tradition of New Year's Day gifts. And of course, um, Elizabeth was a very shrewd person and, and knew very well that she could drop into conversation that she really did favour material, dresses, jewellery. And lo and behold, it's what people gave her. <laughs> no surprise there. Uh, but also in some of the, the accounts that you have of, of people doing the day-to-day, -day, the, the trimmings and the, the, the stuff that goes with your costumes or your outfits and the materials would be sold at market because they were small enough and consumable enough to be sold in, almost in that, that side of things. But bolts of cloth or large amounts of cloth was a significant investment. If you're buying a, a yard, as it was then, or roughly a metre of cloth of gold, you're talking about a labourer's wage of six months for a yard of cloth of gold. It is incredibly expensive, any sort of fabric, and hence the reason that you have that modular approach and the, the clothing, even, even the Queen. So we know what was in the Queen's um, wardrobe at the time of her death, because that is in the infantry, and there are about, just short of, or around 2,000 items of clothing, but they're all separate. But obviously, by having all these separate pieces, the Queen's outfit could be different from day to day. And you could put different sleeves with different um, bodices. 
different dresses um, or different dress material over it you know so you can really combine all of these and produce those those amazing things and hence the reason that it's all modular and held together with braids or ribbons or laces or indeed pins the tradition of giving new year's gifts is an important one our early modern counterparts marked the start of a new year with small tokens, always, of course, commensurate with one's sort and accompanying resources. So Nick tells us that small items of wearables were exchanged as New Year's gifts, a bit of lace, a new collar, etc. In 1668, Samuel Pepys recorded buying some furniture for his wife as a New Year's gift, for which he paid the handsome sum of £11. A pretty substantial gift. One of the most commonly practised Christmas traditions was centred around music, or generally speaking, entertainment. Music and dance historian Roxanne Bennis explains how budgets were set out in advance for Christmas festivities for the men at the Inns of Court. 1527, those who shall keep commons at Christmas, so these are the ones who weren't going home, they were actually staying at the Inns of Court, over the Christmas holidays, they should be allowed one boar, which is obviously the boar's head for the feast, the stipend of the minstrels at Christmas, 30 shillings, and a cartload of coals for fuel. But, but right there, you've got the boar's head, the food, the coals to stay warm, and 30 shillings to pay musicians for like the 12 days of Christmas. So it was right there, assumed you're having music and dancing and partying. There is also a song from the time. It is A Glee at Christmas. And it's, it starts off very serious. It is Christmas now, when Cato's self could laugh, and smoothing forth his wrinkled brow, gives liberty to quaff, to dance, to sing, to sport, and play for every hour's a holiday. And for the twelve days, let them pass in mirth and jollity. The time doth call each lad and lass that will be blithe and merry to dance, to dance, to sing, to sport and play for every hour's a holiday. And then I think, then I think they get really kind of optimistic here because it says, and from the rising of the sun to the setting, Cast off cares. Tis time enough when 12 is done to think of our affairs. <laughs> but I think that sums it up. The 12 days of Christmas was dancing, singing, music, drinking, and eating. There is this much more communal feel about it. And especially the king, the nobles, you know, the lords of the manor, they were expected to extend hospitality. I really think it had a lot to do with that communal and sense of community and, and everyone celebrating together. There's also a lot of references, you know, to people going around to the mummers. The mummers would go around to different houses, as even today to a certain extent. But there were all these activities where you went around the community to the houses and you were given food and drink. So it was almost in a way of really getting a lot of people through a really hard, cold, lean time. So it's a great way of having fun, but it was also a great way to, to beg for that bit extra without looking like you were begging because you were helping the party. In Love's Labour's Lost, the character Barone laments that his strategy for wooing women has been thwarted by the much more savvy party of ladies. I see the trick on here was a consent, knowing aforehand of our merriment, to dash it like a Christmas comedy. Barone's reference to a Christmas comedy implies that humorous festive entertainment was calculatedly subversive, something that dashes or dismantles expectations. We'll return to the subversive aspect of Christmas entertainment shortly, but before that, let's learn a bit more about festive partying. But they also had mummer's plays, rowdy and silly and knockabout humour and lots of in-political jokes and that sort of thing. Did you know that Ben Johnson wrote a mummer's play? It's actually called Christmas, His Mask. But when you read the thing, it's a mummer's play. All these weird characters come in, they say silly things, but it's rather interesting uh, because Father Christmas comes in and this is how Father Christmas is dressed, according to Ben Johnson. Round hose, 
long stockings, a closed doublet. Color is not specified though. A high crowned hat with a brooch, a long thin beard, little ruffs, white shoes, scarves and garters, tied cross, cross tied. And for some reason he's carrying a truncheon. That's Father Christmas for you. In Tudor times, Father Christmas did not bring presents to children. What's interesting is he comes in with 10 of his children. So this is misrule. Misrule is wearing a velvet cap with a sprig, a short cloak, a great yellow ruff, like a reveler, and accompanied by a torchbearer. So, I mean, we are talking the absolute overdressed, foppish, dandy. Minced pie is one of the characters. Mumming in a masking pied suit with a visor. Wassail. New Year's gift in a blue coat like a serving man with an orange, a sprig of rosemary gilt on his head, his hat full of brooches and a collar of gingerbread. With his torchbearer carrying a march pane and a bottle of wine under either arm. And then the, the important one, the musical reference, is Carol, who is actually a boy, and he comes in wearing a long tawny coat with a red cap and a flute at his girdle. Flute could have been either flute or recorder, of course. And his torchbearer carrying before him a songbook open. So, so there you've got, though, in this mask, one of the 10 children is singing and music. Christmas Carol. The interesting thing is, because when we say Carol, we tend to think of all the very solemn, slow Victorian carols. And Carol originally meant a jolly song. I mean, it was a jolly song. And you had May Day carols. You could even have Easter carols. This is why we always still refer to Christmas carols. You think it's redundant, but it isn't, because a carol could be sung about any topic and any holiday at any time. By the way, one Christmas carol that we still sing today, which does go back to Tudor times, is God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. And, and it was sung, it would have been sung, you know, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. It wasn't this God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. <laughs> the first Christmas carol book that we know of was published in 1521. Literally, Winken de Word, W-Y-N-K-E-N-D-E. W-O-R-D-E. And it is our source for the Boar's Head Carol. Of course, the serious festive entertainments took place at court. So to learn more about how royalty enjoyed Christmas, let's hear from Brett Dolman, curator at Historic Royal Palaces. Let's begin by defining what court actually was in 1603, the year of Shakespeare's great promotion. Court is a movable concept, so it doesn't just stay in one place. It moves from palace to palace. So you get places like Hampton Court filled at Christmas with perhaps up to a thousand courtiers, visiting ambassadors and their servants, um, all needing to be fed and entertained, but also meeting to make big decisions about the country. And this describes what Hampton Court would have looked and felt like in 1603, which is the first or the first English court of James I and James VI of Scotland. It would have been a busy, crowded, loud place. And normally it would have been a dirty and trashed and exhausted place after a few weeks, which is why the court then tends to move on to somewhere else. Because if you can imagine all of the the necessary stuff that had to happen and be cooked um, and washed to support that many people in residence all crammed together for such a period of time, at some point it needs to go somewhere else. Well, let me paint you a picture first of 1603 in particular. So Queen Elizabeth has died and we have a new monarch and you have quite an exciting new young royal family so you haven't had a royal family to look at to gawp at for quite a long time elizabeth was famously childless so you have a king in james the first but you also have his queen queen anne of denmark where she came from and also their nine-year-old son prince henry and because there's been plague across the summer of 1603 the court has moved for Christmas out of pestilential London to Hampton Court, which is considered to be a bit more 
bit safer, a bit more rural. And the courtiers are gathering there to have fun, but also to see this new royal family. There is a real sense of optimism and looking at a king who's ruled successfully in Scotland already, um, and people are hoping for a new era of, of religious and political peace, I think. And James has got this name as being a rex pacificus, a, a peaceful king that's interested in peace, not war, of finding compromise. So all of these things are coming together, and you get all of the courtiers and ambassadors arriving at Hampton Court in December, yes, to to take care of matters of business of state, but also to have a festival of Christmas and to look at and study and hopefully be impressed by the new royal family. As Brett mentions, court was a place of lobbying, politicking and power playing. And famously, in January, at the end of the Christmas period, James held the Hampton Court Conference to discuss all matters religious, the outcome of which was the commissioning of the King James Bible, which was an attempt to appease the pious sobriety of the Presbyterians, as well as the hangover high Anglicanism of the post-Reformation. And it was in this melange of religious and political debate that the King's men performed at Hampton Court Palace. What we know about what happened then in 1603, once the court has gathered at Hampton Court, is you get this intoxicating festival and occasionally intoxicated festival uh, of plays, of dances, of masks and banquets. And one of the key groups who are performing at this festival are the newly liveried King's men. So they have not only been recognised as one of the leading acting troops on the public stage, uh, the king is now saying, I'm going to give you royal patronage, you're going to be called the King's men. And they become courtiers, they're grooms of the chamber, which is a, a functioning title within the royal court. And for that, they're awarded red gowns for the previous year so that they have a, a uniform, if you like. And we know that they came to court, we know that Shakespeare was there, and we know that they were paid £53 for performing six plays over the Christmas season, four in front of the king, and two uh, in front of Prince Henry. We don't know what these plays were, except that we know that one of them was almost certainly a Midsummer Night's Dream, um, because one of the audience, a courtier called Dudley Carlton. He records that, I'm going to quote from a letter that he wrote, we have had here a Merry Christmas. The first holy days, we had every night a public play in the Great Hall. On New Year's night, we had a play of Robin Goodfellow and a mask brought in by a magician of China. So most people agree that Robin Goodfellow was probably a Midsummer Night's Dream. Another play that was probably performed was Hamlet. And this would have all have taken place as Carlton has described, in the evening entertainment amidst the or after the uh, political meetings and the daily religious services that would have taken place during the day. For first of all, you have to imagine the Great Hall at Hampton Court, which is one of the few surviving spaces where we know that Shakespeare performed. And this on a normal day, would have been a works canteen. You'd have had all of the courtiers, the lower ranks of courtiers, being fed there twice a day. But on special occasions, you'd have had an army of painters, glaziers, plasterers, uh, feather makers, carpenters, and wire drawers, who are the people that strung wires across the ceilings on which chandeliers would have hung, all coming together to transform these spaces into magically lit theatres. And in the evening with the candlelight and all of the colour of all of the costumes of the courtiers that were gathered there and the tapestries that were on display woven with their gold and silver thread, the whole thing would have been genuinely a kind of a magical, busy, fun experience to have. Uh, and we've got a, a, an eyewitness account not of 1603, but of a bit later, um, Orazio Bassino, who is a Venetian diplomat at court in 1618, he complains of the overcrowding. We, mo we moreover, he says, had the additional affliction of a Spaniard who came into our box by favour of the master of ceremonies, asking but for two fingers breadth of room, although we ourselves had not space to run about in. And I swear to God that he placed himself more comfortably than any of us. So all of these people, important people, were crammed into to terraced seats, we think, that would have been either side of a, a stage that would have taken up the middle of the Great Hall with a king and queen on a raised platform at the end and the actors entering from the opposite end of the state, of the opposite end of the hall. And I think it's worth pointing out that James's court becomes 
pilloried, criticised, admittedly most frequently from the safety of the Commonwealth a bit later, by people that said, um, well, they described James's court as being full of spangle babies in a nursery of lust. I've amalgamated two quotes there. It's Thomas Decker, the playwright who writes of spangle babies, people covered in costume and jewellery and extravagance. And a nursery of lust describes, from a Puritan point of view, the debauched behaviour of courtiers. Everything was criticised from the uh, short skirts of the lady maskers, including the queen herself, through to the lewd behaviour. This is a young court. This is the thing to emphasise. This is a, a space for full of 20-somethings and 30-somethings having fun. And of course, it's not always successful. James complains uh, during one performance, you know, what did they make me come here for? And so, you know, it was a big ask. These plays had to be successful. Sometimes they weren't. And sometimes they went on too long. Orazio Bassino in 1618, our Venetian diplomat, uh, he complains that um, the performances of uh, went on into the early hours and then everybody was so hungry that they went through to the next room and descended on the buffet um, like so many harpies, he says, and the plates and the glass on the tables collapsed and crashed and smashed everywhere. So it's not, you know, a formal state occasion. You know, it is a time for, for letting your hair down and having fun. I asked Brett about the implications of some of Shakespeare's work being performed in front of James, plays such as Macbeth, King Lear and Measure for Measure, for instance, which all deal with pretty rotten kings and leaders. There is propaganda in Shakespeare's plays in as much as that he is, as a playwright, acutely aware that he is writing not just for the public stage, but for the court stage too. And James, the king, is also equally aware that he is a very visible manifestation of monarchy. He says himself in Basilicon Duron, which is his book on statescraft, that the king is as one set on a stage whose smallest actions and gestures all the people gazingly do behold. And this means that particularly on occasions at court where you have the king at one a one end of the hall watching a performance, that people are watching him and his reactions as much as they are watching the performance. And Shakespeare knows this too. So you get plays like Measure for Measure, for example, which we know was performed at court the Christmas after 1603, where it's a play about a corrupt legal system and it's the Duke's intervention that saves the day. So you can say that therefore it's the king acting as an all-knowing, all-powerful, just ruler coming to solve a real genuine political problem. And so there are ways in which you could read Shakespeare's plays, some of them, as facilitating the king's message to come out. It doesn't mean that he doesn't shy away as a playwright from controversial subjects. You get something like King Lear, which is all about kingship and the right of a ruler to act. And you also get Macbeth, which is a really interesting um, play because it's essentially about James's ancestors. And you also get Hamlet, which we think was probably performed in 1603. Um, and it's Hamlet. I'll paint you a picture of Hamlet being performed at court. Within Hamlet, you have this scene of a play within a play, where you have a play being watched by the king and queen of Denmark. And at the other end of the hall, in a court performance, you have a real king and queen watching a king and queen watching a performance. So it's a play within a play within a play. And then you have the audience watching James and Queen Anne, who is, after all, also from the Danish royal family. So there's layers of meaning and messaging um, within a court performance that would have not been lost on the well-read, well-informed political courtiers there at the time. This is a book by Alvin Kernan. And the book is called Shakespeare, the King's Playwright, Theatre in the Stuart Court, 1603 to 13. One of his chapters is on, is on Macbeth and how it would have gone down at court. According to the original stage direction, a show of eight kings, the eighth with a glass in his hand and Banquo last, parades across the stage like a living family tree. And in the mirror, carried presumably by the last of the eight kings, could have been held up to show the ninth Stuart King, who is James himself, um, reflected sitting in his throne during the performance in August 1606. 
Uh, but also, nor did the line of Stuart Kings end with him, for the play prophesizes that he shall be the progenitor of many more, who shall carry the symbols of rule over both England and Scotland. So I think there is a thing there which is sort of making a, a case for a new beginning. And it's also very much the other topic of the year is Britain. And Great Britain is a phrase that James is actually fond of himself. And he is the first monarch that is uniting the two crowns. They're still two separate crowns of England and Scotland. This new idea of uniting the crowns was something which needed support. It needed a marketing voice, if you like. And maybe there are parts of Macbeth which are part of that. So it's always struck me as audacious of any playwright, let alone Shakespeare, to presume to lecture a monarch on the nature of, well, monarching. But actually, Brett had a wonderfully thoughtful response to this. I think that Shakespeare wouldn't have had such a successful decade as a court dramatist if he had crossed the line too many times. I think that he became expert in recognising and addressing issues of the day that everybody was, after all, talking about, but then packaging his plays so that the plays became potentially a vehicle to produce a royal response. So they don't shy away necessarily from controversial subject matter, but they provide a way of creating an answer for James to make himself through the vehicle of the play. I'm not saying that that's always successful, but I think that James as a king is also very aware that these are debates that are being had within his court about religion, about politics, about divine right to rule, about Great Britain as a concept. And so it would have been foolish as a king to ignore them. You have to address them. And if you are able to address them and talk about them whilst getting your point across, and if you manage to package that up as a form of entertainment at the same time, so people don't even know they're being lectured at, then I think that's quite a powerful. Um, it's wrong to call it propaganda, I think, because propaganda is is a more of a modern word. But I think it's a very clever marshalling of the resources that are at your disposal to try and get your point across. Notwithstanding all of this marshalling of resources to edutain court and king, I can't help but wonder where the fun actually was in any of this entertainment. Well, the really fun, spectacular headline fun entertainment packages were the masks rather than the plays. So the plays are, are performing a dual function of, if you like, serious entertainment, what we'd call something to get your intellectual juices flowing. But they're, but they're also, um, you know, there are Shakespearean comedies as well, and there are comedy elements within other plays which, would have, which are there to provide the light relief from some of the more serious testing moments. Um, but you have the mask, which is a combination of, of music, of play, of dance, and also very much more of propaganda, because generally speaking, a mask followed a very similar plot. You had a world that in some, some way was thrown into chaos. Uh, and it's only through the advent normally of the arrival of the monarch or a cipher for the monarch in terms of a god or something like that who would come along and then create order out of chaos. And then everybody would have a spectacular dance and take to the floor and have a good time. So that's that's the bit I think that people genuinely look forward to, if you like. And you have colossal stage sets and enormous amounts of expense that was that were uh, utilised for creating these fantastical, immersive moments of theatre for the mask. Such material exuberance inevitably trickled down from fashionable court into the manor houses of the country, setting high standards for Christmas entertainment. Brett's reference to fantastical theatre, coupled with Nick's discussion about dresses and costumes in masks, helpfully leads us into one of the most curious conceptualizations of Christmas celebrations from the period, and circles us back to the concept of subversion. Earlier on, Esme talked about the disruption to daily routines in domestic life brought about by the extended break from work. This disruption was something that featured heavily in the tradition of the Lord and Lady of Miss Rule, who, as Joan stated earlier, were chosen after located the beans and peas in the Twelfth Night Cake. 
Here's Esme again to tell us a little bit more. The Lord of Misrule is basically the person who's in charge of the Christmas festivities. They are in charge of the 12 nights of Christmas. And the point is they are not a Lord. They are usually someone fairly lowly. So it's the idea of everything being turned on its head and the servant becoming the master, kind of. Obviously, one has to be a little careful when one is the Lord of Misrule not to go too overboard on that. And they were in charge. And they was often, frankly, someone a bit disreputable. I always imagine Falstaff would be a brilliant Lord of Misrule. You know, it's that kind of person is the Lord of Misrule. It's the guy you go to the pub with who gets drunk and has the good ideas. We've heard a lot over the course of the series about Protestant memento mori and the consciousness of death woven into everyday narratives and even domestic tasks and objects. But another, less morbid but no less depressing early modern assumption was to do with transience. Nothing, in other words, is going to last. Just listen to the lyrics from Feste's song in Twelfth Night. What is love, tis not hereafter. Present mirth hath present laughter. What's to come is still unsure. In delay there lies no plenty. Then come kiss me, sweet and twenty. Youth's a stuff will not endure. Here's Nick again. So a play that bears the name Twelfth Night, and I know there's a lot of academic debate about when it was performed, when it was written for, all of that. But obviously it has that association with Twelfth Night, this time of misrule and its social inversion. But of course you've got all of these things going on in the play, haven't you, about people outside of their class imagining what it would be like to be within that social class. Of course, most importantly by Malvolio, who believes that his 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 lady Olivia would even entertain the idea of marrying her servant and not somebody who is um, of her social standing. But then all of this starts to tie up with, you know, the things that he alludes to Malvolio. He mentions, you know, he imagines wearing a branched velvet gown or playing with some rich jewel. So he's imagining through what he would be wearing would bring him to his to the social standing of Olivia. It's a deliberate ploy, isn't it, that Shakespeare, through his characters, then brings down Malvolio by making him dress up. So he is dressing up in his famous cross garters and um, his yellow stockings. The audiences of the period would have known this as well. I mean, cross-gartering has so out of fashion by 1601 and that side of things. So it's a ridiculous thing to be doing in any case. And there, there is an Elizabethan popular song in which the husband longs in this popular song for his cave, his carefree days of being a bachelor. And it's called Give Me My Yellow Hose Again. So yellow hose was associated with young people. You know, Malvolio is just being made such a fool of. But the opportunity of doing this around something that is framed in that whole idea of Twelfth Night is really interesting. And it was a big thing that, you know, people are moving out of their social circles. Twelfth Night succinctly disrupts all kinds of routines. The steward becomes the master, the maid marries the knight of the realm, a woman becomes a man, a fool becomes a priest, a man falls in love with a boy and a woman with a girl, and the play ends with a threat of revenge. The play's title cleverly engages with the expectation of subversion in the Christmas period, and most especially with the notion of ending. Youth's the stuff will not endure, and what's to come is still unsure. Everything, in the end, moves on. The beginning of winter marks the transition into the new year, and there was a bizarre co-mingling of fear and optimism at this time. After all, the worst months in terms of cold, darkness and dearth are always after December, in January and February. Just as the temporary holiday, social and domestic disruption cannot last, so too will the good times come to an end. 
And it was this pervasive and cold pragmatism that lent the Christmas period its hybrid celebratory feel coupled with a sense of gravity. Shakespeare's very few references to Christmas echo this tonal confusion. Consider this from Hamlet. Some say that ever gainst that season comes wherein our Saviour's birth is celebrated, the bird of dawning singeth all night long. And then, they say, no spirit dares stir abroad. The nights are wholesome. Then no planet strike, no fairy takes, nor witch hath power to charm. So hallowed and so gracious is the time. The crossover between the supernatural and the birth of Christ was a palpable one throughout the period, and the sentiment ties in with ideas about winter, grief, and darkness. In the winter's tale, the doomed child Mamilius tells his mother that A sad tale's best for winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. So let's try to unpack this a little more with Esme. It is winter. And winter is dark and cold and has bad things. So they used to tell ghost stories at Christmas. They tell stories of, of evil spirits. There is an element of reflection in Christmas as well. You are reflecting. I mean, because those 12 days also do include New Year as well. So there is that part of, there is an element of reflection and thinking about the old year and the new year. A bit like All Hallows, it's a time when the, the spiritual and the real become slightly more intertwined. The veil between this world and that world become a bit thinner and that is kind of, it, it crops up a lot in festivals, but I think particularly in winter festivals because All Hallows is also a winter festival where, you know, that's where that thing of ghost stories, you know, there's, there is that idea of the spirits aren't that far away. It's dark out there. They're probably wandering around out there right now. And that would be, I think, on the mind of a, a Tudor more than it would be on ours now. And we have the idea of Christmas spirits in the modern day. Father Christmas is a, is a Christmas spirit. And we have, you know, his elves and... They had spirits. They had both good and bad, of course. It's still winter and it's still a bit scary out there. <laughs> the coldness and darkness of winter, I think, haunt Shakespeare's plays. And the dread as well as the reality of surviving an inevitable season of death and dearth seeps through the DNA of the plays and poetry and overshadows any joy or mirth associated with Christmas. For never-resting time leads summer on To hideous winter and confounds him there Sap checked with frost And lusty leaves quite gone Beauty o'ersnowed and bareness everywhere The melancholy tinge to the festivities was compounded by its transience The harsh realities of winter The proximity of the supernatural and the inevitable end of celebration, subversion, and disruption, marking a return to normality and, crucially, work. One of the most vivid portraits of domestic life painted by Shakespeare is in a song from Love's Labour's Lost, in which we imagine the coughing, cooking, and general living through the winter. When icicles hang by the wall, and Dick the shepherd blows his nail, and Tom bears logs into the hall, and milk comes frozen home in pale, when blood is nipped and ways be foul, then nightly sings the staring owl, to wit to woo a merry knot, whilst greasy Joan doth keel the pot, when all around the wind doth blow, and coughing drowns the parson's saw, and birds sit brooding in the snow, and Marion's nose looks red and raw, when roasted crabs hiss in the bowl, then nightly sings the staring owl, to wit to woo a merry knot, while greasy Joan doth keel the pot. I adore that extract. So wrap up warm, wassail with whatever happens to be local, pop on your best frock and belt out some carols, but make sure they're in double time. 
Thank you all for joining me in this thoroughly thrilling and marvellously mirthful Christmas episode of Shakespeare's Pants. Have a very Merry Christmas and a superlative New Year. And remember to share this special episode with all your friends and family. And do let me know what subjects you'd like me to cover in the next series. In this episode, you heard the voices of Esme Wise, Roxanne Bennis, Dr Joan Fitzpatrick, Nick Fulcher, Dr Tara Hamling, Brett Dolman and me, Dr Angela Chohan. You also heard the voices of Pete Smith, Rich Bunn, Sarah Horner, Tim Atkinson and Lorna Giltroshaw. A thousand festive wishes unto you all. Farewell. Shakespeare's Pants Christmas Special